This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies ed tech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and it helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of different tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com forward slash B-E. That's IXL.com forward slash B-E. TL Talk Radio Season 7, Episode 35. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 35 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today we're speaking once again with our most frequent guest, Larry Altman. Larry currently works as a consultant for schools, helping them develop legally compliant policies, protocols, and procedures for things such as Title IX, anti-bullying, student suicide prevention, Section 504, and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. He is also a distinguished member of the American Law Society and serves as an adjunct professor for Avila University located in Kansas City, Missouri. Welcome, Larry. Good to be back, team. Good to see you both. It's great to have you back with us. So we are ready to jump in here to our conversation today. And and today's conversation is going to be um, around legal issues and discrimination. So tell us first, you know, how did you become connected to this idea or um, interested in this topic, legal issues and discrimination? The way it really brought it to my attention was 10 years ago when I uh, started working for the Kansas City, Missouri Public School District, an inner city school and I certainly had lived through the 60s and the, and the problems in the Civil Rights Act at that time. But when I went to an inner city school and where the substantial proportion of students were students of color and saw the and got involved with the parents and what they had to deal with, it really brought it to my attention, especially in the field of race discrimination, that we were dealing with a significant problem in our country that I just hadn't recognized to the degree that it was there. And so that was the starting point, and then it just tied in with the materials that I was doing with sexual harassment and age discrimination and disability based upon, uh, discrimination based upon someone's disability. It just became an expanded topic. Then I started doing, even right before I retired and still now, as an adjunct professor at Alva University, we have one of the most diverse populations you can imagine. And to be able to interact with students from all over the world uh, uh, bringing to my attention problems and issues that I had never seen firsthand. And even if I had seen them, being white, old, and male, I could never say to any of my students, I've walked in your shoes. Mm-hmm. And so it really heightened it. Uh, and then with what's gone on with the pandemic and even before with the tragedies in Minneapolis and Minnesota and in the shootings in, in, in Atlanta, it really just sprung saying what else what what am i why am i not doing enough and so that's how i did it in a recent article that you shared with us i want to make a a quote here of something that you said um discrimination based upon race gender and sexual orientation is like a cancer that must be eradicated so 
dig into that. Tell us what what's give us a glimpse into your thinking around that statement. Well, first of all, I don't want to take credit for something I did not say. I used that in an article quoting a Dr. Joseph Ellis in a book that he wrote called American Dialogue, The Founders and Us. And I was impressed. His last section dealt with the issue of racism in the United States. And what he opined was is that until as a country, we recognize that racism is what he called a cancer that will not go away unless we continue to face the challenge that that that's what he referred to it as. It's a cancer in our soul. And when you when I look at the killings and in of the, of the Asian Americans in Atlanta, when I look at the, the police killings, uh, it's a disease. I mean, that's plain and simple. And just we as a country and I'll go back to the 60s when we passed the Civil Rights Act, we thought that was the end of it. Well, it didn't it didn't work out. And so we said, oh, we're done. We've, we passed Civil Rights Act. We're finished. Well, no, we didn't. President Obama comes in, and we have eight years of leadership from a person of color. And I guess as a country, I felt we got lazy again. Well, we're, we've done it. We've made a person of color president. We're cured. Well, no, we're not. And then you add COVID into the situation that exposed, um, as Dr. Fauci said the other day, is it exposed the dis disconnect and the connection between racism and treatment of medical supplies, mm. we have a real problem here. And so if it's cancer, it means if it's if it's left untreated, my son is the oldest son's in the cancer, the patient's gonna die. So what do you do? You have to be aggressive. And I don't have the answer what that looks like. Uh, we do know that we have to be, at least from my point of view and from an educator point of view of college students, we have to be open to discussion. We have to be opening and sharing of ideas. The rules that I establish in my classroom is all ideas are welcome, but we have to be professional about it. We're not going to go down in the gutter and start pointing fingers and say, you're horrible, you're a racist, you're no, you're a blah, blah, this. No, that's not permitted in my classroom discussions. But until we have open discussions, recognizing the problems and can come together as a society, I don't know where we're going with this. It'll be one step forward, two steps back. Yeah, I think that, you know, certainly all those issues, race, gender, sexual orientation, et cetera, they are escalating. And and it seems like we're doing less and less talking to each other, too, to better understand how to solve these problems that do need, like you said, like a cancer, they need some radical uh, treatment for us to, to deal with them. So we are in a, in a particularly crazy time, not only with pandemics, but all sorts of social unrest and, and discrimination. That's just not acceptable anymore. Well, starting from the beginning, I believe that as educators, we're the starting point, uh, along with the families. Families have to take some responsibility as well. But we, when you consider that K through 12 uh, for at least nine months of a year, what do we have? We have the children, what, at least half of their waking time? in our buildings uh, is that we have to take some responsibility, but it takes, uh, to quote somebody, it takes a village. Uh, it's gonna require parents also to come together with us and have open discussions uh, of what might be possible solutions. What made me sad in one of my classes a couple weeks ago was that one of my young ladies said, I just give up. There's nothing that we can do. Mm. She had thrown the towel in. 
And I discussed that she was an African-American young lady, and I discussed that with some colleagues who were African-American, and they were, they were distraught as I was about that. And they said, we can't give up. We have to continue the, the discussion. We have to try new things. Uh, we need to be creative is what it comes down to. So that's a nice segue into our next um, question or thought, asking you about what does it look like or sound like for schools to work together to create and implement these policies or protocols or procedures that can proactively try to prevent this discrimination in our schools and our organizations? Well, I'm going to fall back on what I teach my students, and it's called the Malcolm Baldridge model. And it is the cornerstone of all of my classwork. And it's a, it was developed as an economic plan back in the 80s during President Reagan's administration to deal with economic issues. Uh, it's a four-step process. Uh, that, that the first, it's, if you were to look at an inverted triangle, the, the, it's turned upside down. The point, the bottom, the fourth point is called the goal. What is your mission or goal? And even though it's the last thing that you do in the pyramid, it's the first thing you decide you want to do. So the goal here is to, in a very broad brush sense, we've got to eliminate discrimination. Okay, and that's too broad, but let's say that's what it is. Now we go back up to the top of the pyramid and what we need to do is bring in stakeholders. And those are the people that are in the schools. But who are the two primary stakeholders of every school? Parents and their children. It's gonna take open discussion around tables to sit back and have administrators and parents and students come together with open discussion saying, what is it that we can do to improve the environment in our school? And this is not easy. And from those discussions, you then develop a model of policy, protocols, and procedures that you are going to fully implement every single time in every way that you're supposed to do in your school. But then you have, as I ask my students, the question you have to ask next, how do you know it works? So your policy, protocols, and procedures have to be designed in such a way that you can review data periodically to see if we're making progress towards our ultimate goal. And what I explained to my students and in my discussions of this, you pick out three distinct points of time after you do your first implementation of equal space apart. In the school models that I discuss, you look at it at 15 days, 30 days, and 45 days. You collect your data and analyze it at that in those three points. From a science point of view, that's what we call a trend and you plot that on a graph. And how are we doing? If we're not making significant progress, have we failed to quote Nick Cage in the, in the movie National Treasure? No, we've learned a way not to do it. So you bring that team back together and you revise the plan. You, re, you, you chain what worked, what didn't work, and you continue, and this again talks to the treatment of cancer. In some ways, it's like chemotherapy or radiation therapy. You continue to address the disease and you continue to make changes, but keeping open discussions with all of the players with the ultimate hope that over a period of time, and it's not going to happen in one school year, that we eventually get to the point where we want to be. And that's what my class studies are all about. My, you attend any of my classes, whether it be in the business school or in the education department, that's exactly how my classes are designed. So I'm curious, like, what are some of the data sets that you would look at at those um you know, equidistant periods that you've identified? Well, 
what I would want to know is, first of all, to implement, if you're going to fully implement policy protocols and procedures at all levels, you're going to have to have some training to initiate of everybody, not only staff, but students as well, of what we expect them to do and uh, how we expect their behaviors that they will be monitored at that from for this point forward. Now, what, what we did, let's just take in the school system that I was in, the Kansas City, Missouri Public Schools, I think we had three high schools, two middle schools, and 12 elementary schools. We'd split them up and take, and I would look at the following information. How many reports of discrimination did we receive at each school after the training, at 15 days after the training? What were the grade levels? What was the type of discrimination? Was it oral? Was it, was it a picture of something? And then what, when we did our investigation, what was the outcome? Did we find it? Did we confirm it or we not confirm it? Now, at, at the first 15 days, we would expect a lot of reports because one of the things we encouraged was multiple reports of anything. At 30 days, we were hoping that the reporting of problems had decreased somewhat, and at 45 days, even more. If we didn't find a decrease in the reported incidents, then we knew we weren't doing our job of training or whatever, and we had to go back and reassess what we were doing training-wise. By making it so specific of breaking it down into school groups and then grades and by gender, we could also identify was there a particular grade that seemed to have more issues at this school than the other grades? If so, we could focus our resources on that group and then come back after the first 45 days and start the process again, 15, 30, 45 days, and say, have we made any progress? I know that sounds difficult. I understand that's time consuming. I've got it. Having been a former administrator as, as the person that was in charge of reviewing, not only creating those, but having to review it and assess it, along with all the other duties, I understand that. But if you're going to accomplish and, and, and deal with such a difficult issue, we have to expect that the job, if it was easy, we wouldn't have the problem. It's not easy. and. Baldridge is that I that I talk about is a complex but excellent model, but it is not easy to do. It takes time to learn how to do it. And then once you learn it, it gets to be a routine like anything else. So it is not easy. I I have I know it. I I hear you. But if somebody's also got a better model, I'm listening. That's what and there are other models out there. Don't get me wrong. Sounds like a very comprehensive approach and um and while it does sound time consuming, it sounds like important work too. Well, what the data shows, and again, this is not me, the data shows that if we maintain safe, if we improve safety in the schools, where children feel safe coming to school, not only from race discrimination, but from bullying, sexual discrimination, you name the form of discrimination, that if we improve the safety, academic performance improves because the students are focusing on what? Education. They're not concerned about looking over their shoulder and worrying, where's the next bad attack coming from? Or where's the next shooter coming from? So the, the, the data, and this includes the United States Secret Service, all opined that when we look and analyze the data that's out there, the safer our schools, the better the educational environment, the better the learning culture and the improved outcome of that learning goes up. Well, isn't that the goal? Isn't that really when you when you look at what education is supposed to do, isn't that it? So the benefit 
from doing all this hard work means that educational outcomes improve, which means when we get when we send our children out to society, they're better trained, more competitive with the world. So Larry, most of our listeners are our school leaders and they may be listening to this and thinking, how do I get started? Like are there are there pitfalls? Are there things I should look out for? Obviously we're gonna connect with our solicitor and get get their advice and guidance. But you know, what are some of the pitfalls that school leaders need to look out for when creating these policies, procedures, and protocols around discrimination? Well, the number one failure is failure. Once you develop it, you don't implement them. Mm. That you that you just, you have them, that, that's great, okay? But what do you do if you don't fully implement? Then you're, you're, you've invited disaster to come back and visit you because somebody didn't fully investigate or fully do what we had laid out to do. So implementation and making sure that it occurs is the number one component. One of the things that helps on that, let's go back to my Baldrige model of that group meeting, is you involve representatives, not just from the parents and the children, but you bring in administrators, teachers of all level, and you may not have them all at one meeting. Special ed teachers, you bring everybody and listen to everybody's information that they provide to you. And, try, and then it takes the leadership core group to develop whatever it is they're gonna develop. What the stu- Again, this is the studies, not Larry Altman's opinion. The studies show that if, if teachers are all involved and they have a representative in the group and a teacher says, well, why should we do this? Nobody asked us. The leader of that teacher committee said, yes, they did. I was there. Oh, you mean we had somebody and they, in fact, took some of our advice. That's the buy-in, hmm. what we call it. So the, the thing that I remind administrators about, you've got to make sure you have full buy-in. And that you do everything that you've agreed, that you have said you're going to do, and that is the number one failure, is that you don't do it. In the Secret Service paper 2019 that I'm getting ready to to publish upon, one of the pitfalls they said is that if somebody had read this paper and the one we wrote two years later, their data showed that they have listened to us of the 45 or more shootings that they had investigated under the data, there was information there that if the schools had implemented what they said, they all could have been prevented. Hmm. Think about that for a moment. So what what's on your radar, Larry, in terms of cases, things that are that are sort of on the periphery of the legal world of education law? And uh, what what sort of heads up do you want to give us? Well, the case what's on the radar now is a case, I believe, out of your state that deals with First Amendment rights of students. It's, it was argued before the Supreme Court three weeks ago. Uh, First Amendment free speech rights have been an issue in schools for, gosh, back to the Vietnam War. Uh, in this particular case, we had a student who was a, attempted to try, was tried out for the student cheerleading team and didn't make the team. And that afternoon or evening, she went home on her computer and posted something that said F you cheer squad. This case has been all over the news here. Right. Not on campus, not using a campus computer at home. And the school got wind of this because everybody saw it and promptly suspended the young student for a period of time, a significant period of time, as I recall. The argument that the parent, that the student and her lawyer made was, wait a minute, that's free speech. 
And the district court and the court of appeals agreed that that was free speech and that the discipline was unwarranted. It then got argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, and according to what the editors have said, the justices were concerned that the school had overstepped its bounds. Now, the argument being made by this by the those who thought the school acted correctly was that if we allowed this not to be punished, we were inviting online bullying, sexual harassment, discrimination. The parent, the lawyers of the child said, there's no way we want that to happen. We agree that online bullying and sexual harassment, that even if it takes place off campus, but shows up and disrupts the campus, you got to punish that. This didn't meet that standard. And this, as I understand, re listening to what people were saying about watching the justices, they thought the school had overreached here. So the, the, the concern is I'm reading from both the, from the administrative side is, oh my gosh, is this the end of protecting students from online uh, race hatred? I, I don't think it is. Um, and even in this publication that came out two weeks ago or whatever it was by the Department of Education, inside of that publication, they reminded schools to discipline those kinds of online statements that were uh, bullying, sexually harassment in content, that you should discipline that. And so I think that that, and you're saying you've been reading about that on the internet, we're going to see that case come down. And I think we may actually see some overreaction. I don't think, I think the opinion will be written. And there are, those nine people are a lot smarter than I am. Uh, the, the justices, whoever, if they if they agree that they overreached, are going to say emphatically, we are not tolerating bullying. We are not tolerating sexual harassment or race hate. If that occurs in the same situation, you can punish that. But this was no different than the fact that when we go back to the very first case when the students were wearing black armbands in Des Moines, Iowa, this was protest. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the language might have, if it occurred in the school district, in the building itself, could have been disciplined, I think is irrelevant and immaterial. I sit back and wonder, as I read the facts, why in the world did the school issue such harsh discipline? Yeah. Why didn't they just give the student a day of in-school suspension and be done with it? Case never goes anywhere. And so I think that was a case of overreaction. That is the one case I am watching very closely. Uh, I've had some people, I talked to some people uh, from a couple of universities yesterday that I may be writing with, and they are saying when that case comes down, they would like me to write how that will impact uh, what's going on in schools. So in answer to your question, that's what I'm watching very closely. Well, that does sound like an interesting case and uh, always enjoy hearing your perspective. So thanks again for joining us today, Larry. It's a pleasure to have you with us and uh, learn with you. Well, it's always an honor to be with you too and your audience. <laughs> to learn more about Larry's work, you can visit the show notes. We linked some of his previous episodes as well as some experts that he's recommended in the past. In each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. Uh, this episode's question, how do you engage your stakeholders, those students, uh, those learners, those parents, uh, in open and honest conversations around the school environments? and um, how, our, how our learners are engaging in those environments. If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season seven, episode 35. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Larry. Bye-bye, Larry. Thanks.
Not a problem. Want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, and improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com forward slash BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all of these goals. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.